Okay, hey, let's go. Uh, it's so nice of you to show up on a Saturday morning. Very good to see you again. The end is near, so we'll, uh, and it, that means you'll all loosen up and it'll be a free-for-all of some sort. Here we go. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Good to see all of you. Uh, probably two more times and then we'll all be done. We certainly won't go past February, which means all the burning questions you've got now is the time to ask them. So what's been good is that folks have begun to email me stuff and we'll go through those. Um, but first, you should have gotten this by email. This is our proposal. Will you go to prom with me? And then, uh, you know, you have a time to decide whether you want to buy a dress and order flowers. So, if you're coming along, um, fill this out, give it back to us, and, you know, we'll take care of the rest. So just, uh, just take a look at that. Then, I've had several questions come up, and <clears throat> I'm always happy to answer them, especially uh, some of them are very sophisticated and come from kind of long-time Lutherans. So, uh, that, which is good, because we're weird, and we know that. But if you join us, then you're weird too. So it's training day where he says, you have to, ah, never mind. Okay, so uh, here's what we're going to do. You know, why, do, why are we doing this? So here's a range of the things that have been asked about. One is uh, the, uh, the pillow where we kneel for confession, where I kneel for confession tomorrow, right? Can you remember the name that's on the pillow? Anybody? Yeah, except once in a while somebody says Beelzebub, which always gives me pause. <laughs> but it does, in fact, say Melchizedek. And if you, if you looked around the outside, it's actually em, embroidered. Uh, the, it's a verse from the psalm. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right? Which is strange stuff. Anybody remember Melchizedek, who he is or where he's from? What, what do you know about Melchizedek? Uh, he was the king of uh, the name of the city. Salem, yeah, hmm. and immediately you go, Salem, what? Okay, good, he's the king of Salem, and? And he met Abraham with red wine. Yes, he bumps into Abraham. This is really early, like Genesis 12 or something, right? It's really early in Genesis. Abraham is wandering around. He meets Melchizedek, this strange figure, and... Uh, Two things happen. Doesn't he give him a little tithe? Gives him 10% of his stuff? And then some bread and wine. You go, Burr. and then he kind of disappears. And then you have him mentioned again, uh, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek in Hebrews as well. And you go, Melchizedek, what's what? Now, here's where I'm going to make you all nervous. But some things I won't make you nervous about, I hope. So, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And you go, what's the order of Melchizedek? You've got, you got to figure that out. But a priest forever becomes a prophecy about Jesus. So whatever Melchizedek was, there's this office of priesthood so early, and he's part of it. Um, I tell you what, you got your phone on you? Google, just Google Melchizedek, and just we should probably just open a Bible. I think it's Genesis 12, but I don't want to start poking around before I... So what happens is you have this great thing where Abraham tithes and gives um, bread and wine. And then you have this thing of, you know, priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus. Is it 14? Yeah. So if you want to grab a Bible, you can look at Genesis 14. I mean, it's just for fun. 
So, so it's a strange thing about this guy Melchizedek who appears and then he's shown all kinds of favor and then he disappears and then he comes back. So look at this. Um, this is 14, Genesis 14, 17. After he, after return from defeat, and the kings were with him and the king of Sodom went up to meet him in the valley of Sheba. And Melch- so, so Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, God of the Most High, maker of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Abram, sorry, we're not at Abraham point yet. So he's a priest already after the God Most High. He's a true priest of Yahweh. Uh, and he brings out bread and wine. So he brings bread and wine, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything he's got. And you go, what in the world is going on there? Well, we could talk all day about it. The farthest outside edge is, it's kind of technical stuff, but this is the pre-incarnation incarnation. That Jesus has already appeared now in the flesh in the Old Testament. That's the farthest outside edge. That goes along with the icon we looked at from Rublev a couple of weeks ago where people talk about that as a fleshly presence of the Holy Trinity with Sarah and Abraham, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the flesh, which is not how, how we normally think of either the Father or the Holy Spirit. That's a whole esoteric, you can think about it if you want, and we could talk about whether you should believe it or not. Uh, and if you ask me if I believe it, then I probably won't tell you on a microphone. So, uh, but um, later, you're a priest forever after the order of Wachizek. So anyway, the point of this is, is there's the long priesthood. Jesus becomes the priest with a capital P. And pastors, taken from the priesthood of all believers, who forgive your sins, serve in that office. And when they kneel down, they're forgiven. And when they stand up, they speak in the name of Christ, who is in the order of Melchizedek forever. So it's a simple quote from scripture, and it reminds you that um, this has been going on from forever. So, and of course it's turned that way to make you ask that exact question, but when you walk around, when you do your NASCAR lap on Sunday to get the Holy Supper, you know, peek and you'll see around the edge the rest of the verses um, printed out. So there you go, there's one. Close enough? I mean, that's a little bit of a stretcher there, but that's a good thing. Then. Kissing the altar and ringing the bells. Um, and using incense. Because we didn't do that at my old Lutheran church. No, you did not. But uh, you should have. So here's the thing. Uh, in the simplest sense, again, um, why do you kiss the altar? Same reason you kiss your mother good morning. You do kiss your mother good morning, right, Johan? Yes. You kiss people whom you love, respect. And so the the altar is Christ in some way. The altar is holy. The altar has the wounds of Christ. The altar deserves our reverence. The altar is God welcoming us and we respond. The altar says, I love you, and we respond, love you back, right? And just a little story, if you think this is only us, when the archbishop was here a couple of weeks ago, Of course, every liturgy looks the same, but a little different. Um, We're in line, and we said, you know, 
we'll move here, we'll confess, then we'll move to the altar, kiss the altar, and then you'll sit here. And he looked up and he goes, and genuflect? And I just said, hey, we're not there yet. But just so you think, if you think kissing the altar is weird, you're going to think it's super weird when we kiss it and genuflect. Now, why would you do that? Because the altar is Christ. Because you're in holy space. Because you don't act like it's the same as going to the Kmart. Right? You're dressed up. You're reverent. You're meeting your king. You're in a prescribed space, right? So it's no more than or no less than kissing the feet of Jesus, which if you bump into Jesus, you should do. Okay? Now, why bells and incense? It's a doorbell. Jesus is here. It's a dinner bell. Come eat. It makes everybody pay attention. At the first bell, you'll notice the kids are still talking. Tomorrow, just listen though. At the second bell, it is dead silent. Even if there's 40 kids in the congregation. And that's exactly what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to make you pay attention. It originally came into use um, when churches got larger and there weren't microphones and people were trying to pay attention. And what's the thing you shouldn't miss? You shouldn't miss that Jesus is now coming down from heaven and sitting on the altar. It's a doorbell. Ding dong. I'm here. Right? It's a dinner bell. Come eat. Right. It is like every other bell. Pay attention. Right? Big stuff is happening right now. So it's, it's no more, no less than that. You have to have it no. But um, occasionally in the liturgy, you will drift off. Right? Which is okay, because it's a little like prayers. We talked about prayers last week in a Sunday Bible study where it says, you know, one of the church fathers, or one of the, it was actually a desert father, said, start your prayers with a form, and if your prayers drift off into what's very important to you, um, go ahead and go with that, say those prayers, and then come back. Well, that happens in the liturgy often. I'm sure it'll happen to you tomorrow. At some point, it happens to everybody. You're sort of like, oh, this goes with this, and then that's about my aunt and my friend who's sick, and then ding, 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 ding. Okay, come back to us now and pay attention. Jesus is on the altar for you, right? And then, uh, you know, at some point we're going we're gonna to get to this, but there's kind of an old Lutheran heresy that it's not the body and blood until it hits your tongue. If you press that out, then it's not the body and blood until I do something. Stick out my, that's a bad place to go. But it happened to turn up in a book that was used at all the Concordias for 20 or 30 or 40 years. So it got some purchase in the Missouri Senate. It's a great sadness. Runs against Luther and the Council of Nicaea and a thousand other things in the church. But the bells ring and it means that Jesus' body and blood are on the altar. And then another question was, so why do we eat and drink everything? Well, because Jesus says, take, eat, take, drink. And faith agrees. Now, there are other possibilities, which are, for example, like having a tabernacle. And then, of course, if you have a tabernacle, there's a little light by the tabernacle, and you turn it on. Jesus is home. You know, he has a doorbell, and he has lights. He's very sophisticated. So, uh, but of course, Lutherans get all nervous about that because they get nervous about Corpus Christi, the parades of the mass, and they got, they got nervous about monstrances, and they got nervous of magical use of the... Okay, you know, the, one of the problems with Lutherans is, sometimes the most they know about Lutherans is, 
Why, do you, why don't you do that? Because the Catholics do it. And I can tell you, that's only two generations back. I still have people say to me, why do you, the Catholics do that. I'm kind of like, yeah, and they also baptize, and they read the scriptures, and they say some. So if we like, don't do anything the Catholics do, we're done. Okay? So, Mr. Rumsey, going to start some trouble. Go. And you're early. Good job. Usually it takes you another 10 minutes before you get, but good, good to get way in. You can feel, what's that? And, and the end is near, so go ahead, okay. I know uh, it's not a Lutheran practice, but it is, I believe, an Orthodox practice. And it may be old, but the host used to be passed out. The leftovers were passed out to the congregation, am I correct? Yeah, they could be, and we would do that too. I don't know if that's good practice or not. I mean, it's fabulous practice. I mean, it's great. Eat it and drink it. If you don't eat it and drink it, Wait it for the next time you eat and drink. In fact, one of the early things, and we would do this if we weren't so scattered, but one of the early things that would happen, or one of the things that would happen in the early church was, not only that, but we would commune. Then we'd say, Rumsey, you know, um, go see the Nyquist, they're sick. Well, the Nyquist then only lived four doors down. They didn't live in the next state, right? So you would, you would go with the elements and everybody else would commune and then they'd wait for you to come back so that they knew that the Nyquist got it. Isn't that cool? All right, yeah. Now the problem is we're scattered, we'd be waiting all day or till tomorrow, right? But um, you know this whole, yes, so we have to think about this. So the basic thing is why do we do this? Well, Jesus says eat and drink. If you don't eat and drink, then if you don't eat and drink at all, then you have to figure out what to do with it. Worst practice is, among Lutherans, is they throw it in the garbage or dump it down the drain and act like it's a nothing. You, you kind of go, at the very least, that was for holy use. I mean, the worst thing you say is, the Lord just put his body and blood into that, and you're treating it like, ah. So we also have a thing called, a, every good church, and this gives you something to aspire to because we only got halfway there. When we built this place, every good church has a brazier and a piscina a brazier for burning things that have been put to holy use. So when a pastor's vestments wear out, you burn them. When Bibles wear out, you burn them or bury them. You can bury them as well. Um, after the service, if you can't drink everything, you can give the blood of Jesus a proper burial. You pour it down the piscina. If you volunteer for the altar guild, we have a piscina. The piscina goes directly into the dirt. Baptismal water, too, if you change your baptismal water. You bury it. You, you, you treat these things with reverence. And that may be the kind of overriding practice with all of these things. Why do we have incense? I am going to get you. Why do we have incense? Incense marks territory. This is holy territory. Just if you want to push a little bit, two marks of the demonic, putrid smells, and ice cold. What is incense? warm and beautiful and they brought jesus gold frankincense and myrrh right so it marks territory it chases the demons away it says this is holy and you'll notice again when things that are alive are sensed they're sensed triple double name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit you watch tomorrow the altar will get in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, because it's alive. This is where a living God sits. 
like he sat on the Ark of the Covenant. And so then as we proceed around, we go in front of ourselves, and then we get to the front. We sense it again, the crucifix. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Then we turn to you, you're alive. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We turn to the crucifix and back. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If we have time, we sense the people who are serving. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're all alive. And we're all in the Lord's service. And we're marking you as territory. In the old days, I, you know, I told you, in, if you want to look it up, Exodus 30, as long as we're poking around with Melchizedek, you know, Exodus 30, there's a recipe for the incense. And it tells you exactly how to make it, but it says if you make this at home and you burn it at home, you're out of Israel. That is it. You are out. You're excommunicated. Why? Because God has a smell. Why? Because your smell is your first sense to develop and your last sense to go. So when you're baptized, we anoint you with the smell of oil. And when you're dying, even when you can't talk, even when you can't see, even when you can't hear, smell is often the last to go. We anoint you again in last rites. And you can smell, Jesus loves me. Right? So it is this way of bundling up everything that you are all the time. They used to say about the high priest, you could smell him before you could see him coming. And so the high priest would incense all day long, incense, incense. And when he went into the Holy of Holies, you remember the Holy of Holies had basically what you would think of as oriental carpets hanging down, thick and almost maze-like. He would go in in the dark so that he wouldn't see the Ark of the Covenant with incense to make sure he wouldn't see what he wasn't supposed to see, the presence of God. So there are all these things, but they have, they have a single use, which is God is holy and he loves you. And with his holiness, he doesn't come to destroy you. He comes to save you. And it's physical, tangible, sacramental, beautiful. It is everything wonderful and nothing demonic. And all these things kind of emphasize it. Ring the bell. Jesus is here. You can smell him. Jesus is here. Right? You can taste him. Jesus is here. And when we are, are done with those things, um, then uh, we're very careful with them, right? So right here we take the path of least resistance, though before I go, you know, if we bought a tabernacle, I wouldn't cry myself to sleep at night. Uh, and there are Lutheran churches that have them all over the place. Pastor Kendall's last church had a tabernacle. You just have to know what you're doing when you do it, right? And then, of course, there was a question about why all the things that we wear. And so... This is a very simple explanation. This is a white tie affair. Like if you're going to the altar, you bring your best. You pay attention. You, um, you had some stuff we had to do this week and uh, Pastor Nelson kind of led us through it and he said, you know, everybody needs to come in tip-top shape for this, right? Because this is important. And you gotta be, we got to be ready to go. So um, I gave you, if you look, one of the things I handed out to you are, this was the last ordination we did here of a young guy uh, last year who was a Concordia student and is now a very good pastor. But what happens is you, he goes face down, right? You pray over him, you bless him, you sign him with the cross. And then, if he's silly enough to be a pastor, you get him dressed. So he stands up passively and he's dressed by, you know, the deacons or by a deacon and a pastor. 
So the newly ordained stands and is vested with a maniple, stole, and chasuble. We also have a tunicle, which is, and I'll explain all this as we go, but there's one for the tunicle as well. Um, it just wasn't in the copy I could find this morning. The newly ordained stands and is vested, okay? Lord, the maniple is, when you see Pastor Nelson, I don't know if Pastor, I don't wear it because I didn't grow up wearing it, and frankly, it's an extra thing. You have to relearn your rhythm and so uh, the younger pastors wanted it. I don't wear it. You can see how you have this freedom. I could wear it, but if Nelson celebrates tomorrow, well, I think he's preaching, unless I am. If, if I am, I've got to get busy. But um, <laughs> I should look more than one day ahead, I guess. No. Uh, this maniple is... What? You preached last I did? Thank you. <laughs> I should be free then tomorrow. Uh, this has been a long week. I mean, I can't remember. We had two emergency brain surgeries in the congregation this week. I mean, that was like, that's kind of a, you kind of go, that'll change your week, right? Um, there was, it was a crazy week for people being sick, going to the hospital, and being challenged. It just happens sometimes, but it's weird. Lord, may I faithfully bear the maniples of tear and sorrow. The maniple is like a, if you would think about it, if you're a servant it's like a waiter at a, at a Michelin-starred restaurant occasionally has, uh, you know, a towel or, you know, a cloth when you order that really nice wine to keep from spilling on your very new dress, right? So it's this way of um, drying tears. Yes, symbolic, but recognizing what happens here is a way that dries up people's tears, right? And the pastor's part of that. I faithfully bear the maniple of tears and sorrow. So you absorb the tears and sorrow, if you will, receiving the reward of your labor with rejoicing. So not the reward of my labor, the reward of your labor, right? So I'm here to serve you and come what may. And um, this can be a very sad thing at some times, but in the end, you dry our tears. So he wears a thing that says, in the Eucharist, right? Sorrows are turned to joy. Then next... Uh, vested with a stole, right? So if you need confession, you look for a guy with a stole. If you're going to a new church and you want to go to the Holy Supper, announce that you're going to the Holy Supper, you look for a guy with a chasuble. The chasuble guy is the guy in charge of everything. When we're at the altar, everybody does what the, ch the man in the chasuble says. And then if it's wrong, we work it out later. But at the altar, the person in the chasuble is... Uh, is the one in charge. But before that, so as we get dressed, first an alb, right? So it erases everything but your hands and feet and mouth. We talked about that. So I can get to you, so I can touch you, so I can talk to you. That's all you need to know about me. Then the stole, which means the church has asked me, after the order of Melchizedek, to forgive sins. So Lord, restore the stole of immortality, which I lost through the sin of our first parents. And unworthy as I am to approach your sacred mysteries, may I yet receive eternal joy. So what? I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. When I'm forgiven, I'll live with you forever. But in the interim, even though I'm unworthy of myself, let me come to your sacred mysteries. Remember where the scriptures say, pastors are stewards of the mysteries. May I yet receive eternal joy, so don't let me fail. Don't let me lose faith. Don't let me be unworthy. Don't let me act poorly. 
right? So the stole, with the stole you say, I'm total servant, here to deliver the mysteries, word and sacrament, and forgive sins. So the pastor says to you, and we've talked about this, you know, weeks ago, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you as a called and ordained servant, dressed up and kneeling on a pillow of Melchizedek. So he erases himself five or six or seven times and is not saying, I'm such a big deal, I can forgive you. He's saying, Jesus knows you've got a lot of sins and he sent me to help you. Right? And the stole tells you where you can find that. Right? Somebody who has some experience. So you can kneel down and say anything you want. And that's, he never speaks of that and blessedly forgets it. And you go away forgiven. And life is beautiful. I just yesterday edited the... Uh, schedule for Lent. If you want to come to private confession, there'll be private confession every Wednesday. I think it's at 5.30. There'll be somebody waiting at the back altar and then every day in Holy Week. If you want to come and just give it a go, um, I promise you it won't hurt you. It'll be good for you. So if you want it, but anyway, so you uh, look for a person in the stole if you want to, uh, if you want to confess your sins. Now somebody had asked me, the stole on the, guy, on the celebrant is slightly longer, and I'm like, how would you even know that? Did you peek under his dress? Because it is, in fact, true. It's slightly longer so that it hangs out beyond the chasuble. And sometimes with the cope, for example, the stole is meant to you know, go with the cope, and the cope has multicolors, so it can go across many seasons because it's expensive. To, you, know, you can't have, I mean, you can, but to buy a cope for every season is like, dude. So, you know, you buy one that has multicolors and the Archbishop Ward and then his stole is multicolored. But in general, the vestments tell you the color of the season, right? So we're in the green season and we're just about to go to uh, purple, which is the penitential season of Lent. We've got a few more weeks of Epiphany. But first Wednesday in March, third, I think, we'll go to Ash Wednesday. You can come for ashes too, by the way. If you've never had ashes, <clears throat> you should come. It's good for you. Uh, you get them in the morning, you get them in the evening, right? And I know the old Lutheran thing about, you know, don't, don't, that's your piety, brag about your piety before the people. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get that. I wish that were our problem, right? I wish the problem I had to address is you're all bragging so much about your piety. Yeah, I would love that. I'd love to say to some of you, you're giving too much, like Moses said, or um, stop flagellating yourself, you know, it's not going to do any, yeah, I would love to say that. But in general, our problem isn't that we're too pious. Our, our problem is that we're too nervous. Uh, but this, you know, to have somebody etch the ashes on you, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. It's basically, you're going to drop dead, so we should get busy. But of course, they're etched on you in the sign of the cross, which means death doesn't have the last word with you. So it's a perfect Lutheran thing, law and gospel. It's dust because you are dust and to dust you shall return. Or as we say at the graveside, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's coming for you. But in the sign of the cross, it doesn't have the last word. So if you've never done it before, just come. I mean, follow everybody else up. Uh, as, and as happens in all things, right? It happens to the pastors first and then it goes out. So why does the pastor commune himself? Because he's a damn sinner, you know, a few of them probably yelled at their wives before Eucharist on Sunday. They've got a lot to confess, 
is theoretically speaking about other churches, not ours. So, the first thing that happens is Pastor Bruzek communes that damn sinner, Scott. And you notice that I say, I mean, maybe you wouldn't notice, but I say, if you've worked it, I say both parts. The body of Christ. Amen. So I say the pastor part and the sinner part. The blood of Christ. Amen. Peace be with you. Amen. The celebrant works both sides of the aisle. And then what happens is, from the holy altar that has been sensed with holy smoke and rung with holy bells and anointed with holy oil when it was put into use, the altar, the body and blood, hallows the pastor. He turns and hallows the other pastor. Hallows just another name for forgives, right? For, to be holy is to be forgiven. So the body and blood forgive the celebrant. He turns and forgives the other pastors. They turn and forgive the altar boys and the deacons, and then they come to you. And forgiveness just washes out over everybody from the altar, right? So you have this holiness, not from the pastor, but from the altar, from the body and blood, from the words that are spoken. And it floods the landscape. That's what's happening, right? And that's why, that's why the pastor goes first and communes himself, because, right, that's his job. His job, the maniple, the stole, and the chausable, his job is to make sinners holy, make wrongs right, touch good to evil, to forgive. That's what his job is. And so he does it to himself first, and then to the people who serve, and then to the others, and on and on we go, right? And then by the time we're done, everybody's holy. In the old, ah, so it's everything. It's like, ah, in, the, in, my, in the old days, so there's a beautiful story from six or seven hundred where the priest is preparing the altar and he turns around, there's a kerfuffle in the congregation. So what really, if we were really Christians, this is what we'd do. So the pastor would come down. We all say, peace be with you, right? And you say, to, and also with you, which means I love you, I love you back. That's fabulous. Occasionally people will use that to say, hey, how about those bears in their new coach? That's not the time, okay? You're saying to people, I love you, I love you back. I forgive you, I forgive you back. Even when the pastor turns to you before we start to pray, the Lord be with you, I love you, and with your spirit, I love you back, right? So in the early church, and I actually did this in my first congregation because there were some people who were a little bit at odds with each other. What would happen is, you wouldn't all say it to each other. That's a bit of a shortcut. What would happen is, Pastor would come to the first person and say, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Then he would go to the next person and the next one and the next one. And around it would go. Meanwhile, the pastor would prepare the altar. And then if everything worked and everybody loved everybody and forgave everybody, the last guy would say, peace be with you and also with you. And then they would have the Lord's Supper. There's this brilliant story from six or seven hundred of the pastor starting the peace and then it stalls. And there's these two old guys who will not be reconciled to each other. And the pastor is just like, hey, we're not going on until everybody loves everybody. Can you imagine if we did this? Think about the churches you've been in. Imagine if there was no Holy Supper, if people didn't say, I love you, I love you back, I forgive you, I forgive you. 
Imagine if that would happen. So what happens is, famous story, the priest comes down in front of everybody and he says, man, what is up with you, Rumseys? Why are you such a blockage? She's a wonderful woman. And yeah, you married him, okay? So forgive him and let's get cracking, right? And he has to work it, work it, work it, work it. And then finally, they give each other what? The kiss of peace. And it comes around and then they can have the Holy Supper. And that got institutionalized. And I actually did this in my first parish because I just, um, so don't go look up where my first parish is and all those people are dead anyway, so forget about it. But (laughs) there used to be a thing called a pox, Latin for peace, often a disc with a cross engraved on it that you would kiss with the holy kiss, right? Read the epistles and give the brothers the holy kiss. What is the holy kiss? The holy kiss is the Middle Eastern way of saying we're friends, right? If you have Middle Eastern friends, what do you do? Kiss on the cheek. Europeans do this too, right? Americans are always like, ah, we're not dating. You know, no, it's the I love you, right? So you would kiss this thing called the pox, the crucifix, and you would hand it to the next person who would kiss it and hand it to the next person. I actually, er, er, I mean, one of the things I did was I took a crucifix, a body, and I kissed it and I handed it to the first person and said, we're not going any farther until that goes all the way around. Um, that's how the church, you know, does good. Anyway, uh, tomorrow when you say peace be with you to somebody and also with you or to a pastor, you say, just so you know, I mean, you know, as long, and with your spirit, recognizing the spirit that's put to him when he's ordained. So all you're saying, when a pastor says to you, peace be with you, the proper response is, and with your spirit, which is to say, you're my pastor. So I say to you, I love you as my parishioner. You say, I love you as my pastor. You say, I love you as my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. You say, I love you back as my brother or sister in Christ. Peace be with you and also with you. Peace be with you and with your spirit. Right? So this is just like, all this is is saying all the formal things that need to be said. This is just recognizing where we are. These such a, it's such a good list of questions. Here's the thing. It just tells you where you are and what you're doing. Smoke and bells and, 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 and you know, kneeling and standing and dressing up and kissing each other and saying peace be with you. It's like, this is holy space. You know, the, the Jews believed that the world revolved around Jerusalem. And I don't know if you ever noticed in the Psalms, you always go up to Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is the highest place in the world. Of course, it's not the highest place if you measure, but it is the highest place because it's the most holy place, right? We believe exactly the same thing. This is why we kiss the altar. This is why you don't turn your back to the Eucharist. This is why um, you, know, you genuflect because this, the world is turning around that altar, right? That's the center of the universe. Why is it the center of the universe? Because Jesus is sitting on the altar, right? Welcome home. Thanks for coming. It's good to see you again. All that is going on. And then the last thing, the chasuble. So this great garment that goes over the top and marks the celebrant. Lord, as you said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Grant that as I wear this vestment, I may faithfully serve your grace. So this is the one who acts in the stead of Christ to forgive sins, but especially to celebrate the Holy Eucharist. And that's, that's what's going on there. So all those pieces kind of, um, kind of 
fit together, okay? Um, just a couple of other ones. Why do we bow at the creed and he was made man? Because Luther said so. Luther, yeah, he tells this old story that had been circulating when he, he said that there was a man who wouldn't bow uh, and, and he uh, was made man. You'll notice the pastors, you know, give a bow to that. You can too. And he was made man. Luther tells a story about a guy who uh, wouldn't do that. And he said, you know, in one mass, the devil came up behind him and cuffed him beside the head. He said, if God would have come down for me, I would bow, right? He said, you're such a lout. You, you know, don't you know anything? Well, you know, you're basically saying, it's a way of saying thank you very much. The way if you met the queen, you would say, it's a pleasure to meet you and was made man. God condescended to us, right? And sometimes people don't rise up until he was resurrected. But it's just, you know, do you have to do these things? No. But what happens if you do them? It teaches you. It puts your body into a rhythm. It, uh, it, gets, it has its way with you. So all these little things, do you have to do all these little things? No. But a really bad reason not to do them is the Catholics do them. That's dumb, D-U-M. Okay? So... You do the things that will help you grow in the church. And there are gazillions of them, like fasting during Lent, right? It's just like the ashes, you know. Lutherans, they don't fast because somebody might see them. Really, that's our problem? We have millions and millions of Lutherans worldwide, and then they're all fasting at Lent, and CNN runs a story exposing the Lutherans for fasting too much? Yeah, this is not our problem, okay? We have other problems. So, you know... You're going to have the chance to fast at Lent. We'll probably do, I'll probably do something on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday, uh, but you should already be thinking about maybe if you want to do that. And uh, it's good for you because it shows discipline like so many other things. Um, let's see. Why do we do things in Latin? There was once a man who said to a priest, why do you baptize that child in Latin? And the priest said, because the devil understands Latin. So here's the thing. Uh, why do we do things in Latin? One, because it's beautiful. Uh, and two, you should learn a little Latin because a lot of the stuff in the church is in Latin. When you go to Rome, you're going to want to, able to, you want to see some of the inscriptions or you know, have some fun. Uh, but there's no other reason than it's good for you. It's the same reason you learn German or French or Portuguese. There would be a language people should learn. And you could vacation in the Azores. It would be beautiful, right? Um, Latin is, you know, it has its way with us. And the other thing you'll notice, uh, we try to extend the range of things that we sing, um, you know, into Tizé, for example, right? This monastic tradition from France. Or in Latin, because... You know, for, for the first 1,500 years, much of the stuff that was written was written in Latin. And so you recover these great traditions. So it's a matter of beauty and learning, and, um, and also because Peter Savisky has the most perfect church voice I've ever heard. Come on, that is gorgeous stuff, right? You kind of go, how does he do that? But it's really, really nice. Uh, let's see. I'm just going through. Oh, and then there was the question about, you know, who does different parts and why? If you were in a smaller church, um, you might be used to the pastor doing all the parts. But since we have uh, more folks, we sort of use people the way um, the liturgy. So 
So a liturgy presumes there might be more than one person celebrating. If the pastor does it, then he does all the parts, reads all the lessons, for example. But you know, since we have, for example, Miguel here, then Miguel reads a lesson, or Peter's here, he reads a lesson, or bids the prayers, because it's nice sometimes to have this back and forth and the inclusion of other people and hearing a new voice and all these kind of practical human elements that add to things. And so then the celebrant is reserved for, you know, he's the guy who's in charge this week, he's quarterback, and then other people have to play left guard sometimes, which is fine. Like, if you could make a million dollars a year playing left guard, go to the Super Bowl, you should do it, right? So that's great. You know there's a guy who was a quarterback, I think at Downers Grove, who's now playing left guard for the Rams in the Super Bowl. Am I like, yeah, sometimes I'm too esoteric. Okay, so uh, questions about anything else as long as it's just a free-for-all, yes. Sometimes um, pastors hold their hands like this. Yep, yeah, yeah. What's the difference? Yeah, God, they lose their focus. You know, I, 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 uh, to be honest with you, um, you know, properly together like this and making the sign of the cross right thumb over left. I mean, if you want to turn Anglican, go ahead. You know, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. So, you know, um, you know, you can pray. And you see people pray like this, and you see people pray like this, and you see people pray like I mean, to be honest with you, I try to um, just do this because it's proper form. But sometimes I end up going to church and church, and I forget. So I just pray like this. So there's no sort of... This is the sort of thing, yeah, I mean, properly, if you had 12 choir boys in Cambridge and you paid the freight to get them over here, you'd want them all to do this because you want to get your money's worth, right? But uh, the Lord is fine, right? He's fine with however it goes. But it's a great question, why people do. And different places, there's different local practices, right? I remember reading about a place in France where at the Verba, um, just before the guy said, our Lord Jesus Christ on the night was the, the, at the, he would always take a step to the left and then take a step to the right. And they're like, why does he always take a step to the left and a step to the right? It turns out in World War II, um, there was a priest there celebrating the mass and he stepped left to uncover the elements and all that and a bomb came through and hit the floor right there, but it didn't explode and didn't kill him. So in that parish, Every time a priest celebrates, he takes a step to the left, like, thanks for not killing me, right? You kind of go, why do they do that? Well, because a bomb came through the roof, right? So there's often local custom. So, and people do different things in different places and blah, blah, right? Yes, G. Sometimes there's chanting, and sometimes there's not of, like, of the Lord's Prayer or... Um... Yes, right. Yeah, so um, I, early in the church, everything was chanted because buildings got big and it was a way to make it, the voice go farther, right? Um, at some point, uh, that fell out, you know, because the Catholics did it. And so then, um, even, though the, even though the red hymnal that every, you know, hard-headed Bronze Age Missouri Senate person grew up with, has it all chanted out, they didn't sing it. Why? Because the Catholics did it. So I went through, seminary and and you know i my class on liturgics wasn't taught by a liturgy special it was taught by a guy who had helped put the hymnal together he had another kind of specialty but they never bothered to teach us to chant it's come back with some of the younger guys um, but then there's discussion about um, 
can you actually do it? Now, there are some diehards who say anybody should chant, and, um, but then people come to me after the service and go, what's up with this, right? I mean, you couldn't find a note with both hands. And so, you know, so the question is, you know, what elevates things, what is beautiful, you know, what is fun. Um, people who can chant should chant. People who can't chant should practice. People like me should retire before they're forced to it. Uh, you know, the thing is, is every once in a while I think I'm just going to chant this because I've been hearing it for so long, like I could do it, I think. Oh, so it's personal preference for the celebrant? Well, a celebrant shouldn't do anything by personal preference. He should say, what does G need today? That would be his preferential choice. But I don't know you well enough to you to say, say chant at any cost. Um, if that guy chants again, I quit the church or something in between, right? See, so I don't really know where you are on this. Uh, so we tend to, and, the, the, and of course, the part of the problem is you have Peter who is like, chants like an angel, and then you've had pastors who have been really good over the years, and then, but there is something about, you know, the back and forth of chanting, this, you know, the Lord, you know, and, um, you know, singing the Lord's Prayer, these things uh, came out of some practical considerations um, over the years, and also, uh, there's all kinds of discussion about singing. Musicians always want to sing more, right? I put the stopwatch on it and I show them that singing is already 34 minutes of the service, so stop being so greedy. And, but they're like, heaven is filled with song and you people who talk are of a subspecies. And so, that, you know, it goes all back around, right? So uh, we try to, we do it when we're good at it. And we also, here's the other thing. There's I went to pastor school, but there's also the people who never went to pastor school who are always willing to give me advice about what I should be doing as a pastor, right? Because, you know, if you can be a bank president, you can run the liturgy. Wait a second. Fundamental error. Skills don't always transfer. But um, there are these... So, but what you should do is gently say what your preferences are, and then we will gently try to please everybody which, of course, will be a total failure, but we'll do it anyway, okay? you work it out beforehand, it like you a key Yeah, right. Some people don't. You know, some people need it, some people don't, right? It just depends on... But you shouldn't notice too much. But, like, for me, I, I want a tone before the Lord's Prayer. I could probably find it, but just the tone of the bell. What it does is... That it's, this, is this is such a beautiful question. Here's why. The whole liturgy is this bundle that's interwoven and it all sort of pushes and pulls on itself and slower and faster. And here's the thing, I can, I can feel what's happening in the room. Like I can feel the energy of the room, whether it's too much, whether it's too little, it needs to go faster, it needs to go slower. And everybody has to adjust to the celebrant. This is a difficult proposition. Even the organist, every last person for that hour has to adjust the celebrant. The celebrant has the throttle, the steering wheel, and the brakes, okay? Whatever the celebrant is doing, everybody, we can negotiate it later, but in the service, and it doesn't matter if I'm the senior pastor or not, if you're, who's ever the celebrant, they have to figure it out, but it's on them to get it all right, okay? So sometimes if the sermon is a bust, and this can happen occasionally, you can feel it. You can feel that, like, nobody has a clue what I or that guy just said. The way that you rescue that is, 
with a really good liturgy, which is why it's really important to have really good organists and really good people who can chant and really good choirs. We don't like get all our eggs in one basket here. There are 15 things that make a beautiful liturgy, right? From getting properly dressed, having a great soloist, having the choir, to, you know, people who play a trumpet. There are so many things that have to, like, work. Uh, And, you know, what we want in the end is for you to say, um, that was good for God and for me, and I want to go back, right? And, And everybody has a different preference and expectation, and frankly, part of the reason to do this because if you think I'm going to come out in like a Hawaiian shirt with a cup of coffee and sit in a leather armchair, you just, you happen to get to the wrong St. John. I'm sure there's a St. John in La La Land. That's the Lutheran church you wanted to go to, right? But just so everybody knows what's cooking, right? So it's a beautiful question, and it has to do with training and skills and biases and expectations and the composition of your members, but most of all it has to do with reverence to God, who is actually going to come down and sit on the altar about 41 and a half minutes through the service. And by then, you better be locked in, right? I'm afraid this is a statement, not a question, but I think what is uh, uh, great about St. John is that all of these things that you just talked about, you have not talked about in the hallway. Whereas we have maybe brothers that are out there in the room that, that would, you know, if you didn't put your right thumb over your left thumb in, in prayer, like, you just did this whole thing completely wrong and maybe Jesus didn't show up today because you did that and let's say uh, that's a heavy thing on somebody or even consuming the elements completely after the supper we have left nothing to like like no conscience has been burdened here because we 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 consumed this and if we would have kept some of this somebody that's conscience was burdened by by that being out there and worrying that we didn't do something right all of those things it seems to have been well thought out in the past and I appreciate that there's been a lot yeah, you're a very kind man. You know, in my, when I was a boy, pastor, I would actually talk to other people. In fact, there's, yeah, I don't even want to say, I would talk to other people about this. Um, my mistake was, is that I still, when I was your age, I still thought I lived in a rational universe, which I'm completely convinced now that I don't. And so what happens is, if you don't live in a rational universe where you can say A and B and C, therefore D, um, there's no point in talking. But there's still a great point in being honest and doing your best. And so everything about St. John is like, you know what, one of these, you know, one of these weeks I got to talk to you about money, which is just slightly harder than talking to you about sex, okay? So, uh, you know, I mean, but part of that is, you know, how you do everything well, right? Like you, if you do this and if you do that and if you pull this together, this will be like this and it'll be fabulous and she'll be happy and she'll come back next week. And by the way, I'm telling you all that in advance, right? And if you don't join here, you're not going to hell. You're just going down the street to another Missouri Senate church. Okay, and that's fine with me, right? There's a huge difference for me between people who are going to hell, where hell is, just to be clear, when you get your own way forever, and people who are going to another, and I've thought about this my entire life. I think, you know, although I would like slightly tighter control, uh, you know, and, and millions more dollars, and, and probably some other things if you give me a second to think about it. No, the thing is, is, I've thought about this my whole life. Everything that happens here is 
focused on this th single thing, to do our best, right? To do our best for Christ and then for you. You may not think it's your best. You, you may not think it's the best for Christ. You might not think it's the best for you. All I can do is tell you the reasons I'm doing the things I'm doing. Your life is richer if you smell Jesus tomorrow. Because this is what you're going to say. You're going to say, what just happened? And by the way, you should also say, if you can do this without being too freaky about it, and the demons are leaving now. And the place is filled with angels. Because this is heaven on earth. Right? And I can say all those things literally and without any sort of quiver. Right? So that's what we're trying to do here. And in a world where everything is cruel, everything is antagonistic, everything is ugly, beauty doesn't matter, people are hateful, if you create an irresistible environment, that is the best possible witness to Christ. And that includes your own life. It doesn't just include a good cantor and a good organist and vestments and smoke and bells. It also includes your ability to act like a Christian. And if we did that, People would crawl over broken glass through fire to come to church. The reason people don't come to church is because of us, right? Everybody in the world is searching for a place where they can go to be loved and included. Everybody, everybody, right? And Christians often don't um, show Christ in their lives. But anyway, the, the, you know, having said all that, this is, I, I said the very first week, this is full disclosure. This is like at the end of the car commercial where the lawyer talks really, really fast about your interest rate and how long it's going to last. Yeah, that's what I'm doing here. This is like, if you want to know anything, now is the time. Because what I don't want you to do, if you say to me, you know, six months from now, I'm having trouble believing that's the body and blood of Jesus, I would be fine with that. If you say to me six months from now, um, I never really believed it was the body and blood of Jesus. I'm going to be like, you signed the yellow form. <laughs> right? So, all right, what else? Anything else you got just hanging out there? Because obviously we've burned this day. And, uh, you know, I may keep you just a few minutes, though, because I just want to try something. Yeah, yes, David. Uh, Christmas Eve, uh, altar assistants held a uh, cross over your head. Or yeah. Yeah. What's special about that? It was fun. <laughs> yeah. Pro yeah, good call. Um, yeah, the name of that cross is the one that Bruzek found in Rome from the nuns. Uh, here's the thing. Properly... You know, when you read the gospel, you have a procession. In fact, in the good old days, and maybe we should do this again, we used to bring, you maybe have seen this, where the, altar, where, the, where the scriptures come, not to the lectern, but actually in the middle of the people. So you bring the gospel back, and so Jesus talks right from the center with the cross and the torches and the pastor and the incense, right? Frankly, we don't do it because it's just a matter of time, and you all are programmed to a liturgy that lasts 59 and a half minutes. I know at Easter Vigil and at Christmas you'll give me 75, but 80? If I go 80, your sister's not coming back. So, uh, right? I mean, this can happen. So, uh, midway step is to do it at the lectern, right? So, um, I first saw it in the Archbishop of Paris in Notre Dame before it burned down. It's the most beautiful thing. 
So the lights come. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. The light no darkness can overcome. And whatever the reading is, what you should hear is, Jesus died on the cross to save you. Um, And so, again, these are tactile ways to teach you. Here's what you should say. The world is dark. Here is light. The world is hateful. This is love. And this is for me. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the first chapter. And the word was with God and templed among us, full of grace and truth, right? You kind of go, oh, I get it now, right? So the point is to make, you know, all this stuff pull together. And, you know, if churches spend all their time, you know, arguing about something else or thinking about something else, you can't ever get to this point where, I mean, you should come here and just be overwhelmed by how wonderful Jesus is and, and what, he, what he gives you and what he wants from you. Yes, sir. Is there a reason why your lectern is on the right? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know there are two seminaries in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod? Do you know that in one seminary, the pulpit is on the right and the other one, the pulpit is on the left? So um, I can tell you why it's done that way. The long tradition of the church is. Um, so again, like everything matters, right? And if I'd have had more money, I'd have done this. Next time you go to the Vatican and you go down and see where Peter's buried, you have to ride ahead for the Scavi tour. You go down, and I'm a believer. There was a stake they found on the ground in excavations under the altar that said, Peter is here. Not a headstone, just a stake. Peter is here. But when you go through the Scavi tour, you get to enter out underneath the altar at the Vatican, you'll notice there's all these compasses laid in the floor in the stone, north, south, east, west, right? You'll see it often in churches, north, south, east, west. And the sense is that the gospel is meant to go to every corner of the earth, right? If you are clever tomorrow when you're making your NASCAR lap and you look up, you'll notice that very subtly the color of the boards points north, south, east, west. Look under the pulpit and under the lectern. They're marked, right? Some of these things, you know, if we, and I'm being serious, if you had a million more dollars, you'd do it differently. We had what we had, we did what we did, but so why is it one side and then the other? Um, and I'm going to extend your question. Why is, the, uh, why is the gospel read from the north side of the altar? And why is the epistle read from the south side? Okay, here's the thing. When you built a church in the old days, they used to set a stone in the mud and carve the top, and that was the altar, and they built the church around it. The altar was the most important thing. It's an ancient tradition. Also, churches were always, when I say always, that means when they could, right? Always built facing east. You know why they were built facing east? Do you know why? Anybody know why? It's the rising sun. That's so, when the Spirit flees the temple, next time you go to Jerusalem, you can check your compass. When the Spirit flees the temple, it flees um, out, down over the Kidron Valley. Oh, this is in, in, in the Old Testament. It goes out of the temple, over the Kidron Valley, up over the Garden of Gethsemane, over the Mount of Olives and out 
When Jesus returns from the east, he returns over the Mount of Olives, down through the Garden of Gethsemane, across the Kidron Valley, and back up onto the Temple Mount. Also then, for example, in Egypt, there's a famous example of this. They knew there's a graveyard that was excavated, and they could tell when it stopped being pagans and started being Christians, because pagans were buried facing west, and Christians were buried facing east. Because, you know, if you rise up as Jesus comes, you don't want to miss a moment of eternity. Or if Jesus would come during the Mass on Sunday, I'll have my back to him, but you all will go like this. And then I'll know eternity has begun. You don't want to miss a, you don't want to miss a second of the joy that will come from Jesus. Jesus will return from the east. That's, the Messiah comes from the east. So churches were built toward the east in anticipation of not wasting a second of joyful eternity, right? You don't want to miss him when he comes. Okay, so let's just say that way is east, right? If that way is east, you were a Boy Scout probably. So if that way is east, then this way is south and this way is north, right? So the lectern is to the south where the Old Testament and the Epistle are read because all the Christians will understand that they've been catechized. So this is prophecy, which is difficult to understand, or epistles, which is instruction on how to live in the church. But, you know, there's a little compass on the floor, north, south, east, west, and go make disciples, all nations, teach everybody everything. So the gospel is read from the north, where it's cold and dark, and there's no light, but Jesus' warmth, and Jesus' light, and Jesus' joy. The gospel, and so the pulpit goes to the north side because it's everything for everybody and you should be able to say um, i'm really happy to be in the church where jesus tells me about things and i'm really happy to be in the church where it's everything for everybody and no distinction if you even come to morning eucharist on tuesday wednesday thursday we read a psalm an old testament epistle the deacon reads it from the south side on friday the gospel is read by the celebrant to the north side. Just watch. One, one time we do it this way, we step the other way. Why? Because we remember what, it's, it's a way of telling us what the church has to do. We have to strengthen the people who are here already, right? Fertilize them, water them, give them light, grow them up, and go to everybody else, right? And whenever you walk into a cathedral or a church and you see a compass on the floor, that's what they were thinking. That is a great question. There is nothing in there, there's nothing in that entire place that doesn't mean something. That was designed from a blank room, and every last thing in there means something, right? Every last thing in there is consonant with the church for the last 2,000 or 4,000 years. So, you know, it's like you're stepping into a moving stream. This didn't start with us. We shouldn't be making a lot of snap decisions about how we're going to change things, right? We step into a moving stream and we add our best. We don't act like we're bosses that can do what we want with the church. It's madness, right? You know, it's the old thing when you write a dissertation, they say, you know, if you do all the research yourself, you've got a fool helping you. Well, you know, that's how many churches are. They just, we'll just pop up and, you know, uh, do whatever we want. Ah, what else? Yes. Um, speaking of seminary. Yes. 
Say it again. So deaconessing, do we have any? Um, we actually do have a few people who are trained as deaconess, so we don't have any more, but when we get that million dollars, we'll get 10, okay? So um, a deaconess is a woman who's consecrated for service to the church. Ancient, it's in the New Testament, right? There's women in, who are deaconesses. Um, they're basically, Lutherans have a very strong tradition of this, especially coming out of the 1800s where um, instead of having nuns, they had deaconesses and they were given to service. And a strong tradition of deaconesses came from Germany to America and did all the things that nuns would do, right? Teach, care for the poor. There are people here who are, I don't know if I should expose them. There are people here, there are probably three or four. I mean, well, a great one is Betsy Carpin Dodgers, the vice president of the congregation. She's the deaconess at Concordia University. And, um, you know, so she's been called there to care for students, right? So yes, we do have them. Um, they go through a rigorous couple of years of training and then they're placed and they do primarily um, acts of care. You find them in hospitals, you find them in churches where they teach or you find them work with the poor. It's a noble vocation. And there are some other people who, we've had several deaconesses through here, but just in terms of having on the staff, it's just how big you can make your staff. But yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous thing. And Lutherans are kind of way ahead of that. Catholics are still arguing about whether uh, women can be um, placed. I don't know if they're going to say ordained into the diaconal ministry. They have men who are deacons, but not women, interestingly. So good. That's a great question. What else? Anything else? Please. At five minutes to the hour, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, I could give you an explanation. Yeah, no, I, so here's the thing. Um, yeah, it's a simple answer. It turns on, I, and if you can't say something in ten words or less, right? Yeah, here's a simple answer. Jesus didn't ask them to be pastors, period. It doesn't have anything to do with dignity, skill, ability. When I taught, I taught three years at Princeton Seminary, the women in my classes, more than half were women, and they were far better students than the men. Doesn't have to do with intelligence, doesn't have to do with empathy. It has, it's a simple question. Just answer this question. Just answer this question, and it'll resolve itself. Did Jesus ask them to do it? Period. Question mark, whichever you want. That's a simple question. Everything else, will, if the answer is no, then you carry on in one way. If the answer is yes, you carry on, and they're accorded every last thing that should be accorded but that then becomes a very long conversation. All the way from Christer Stendhal, who was Bishop of Sweden when women's ordination came, Lutheran Bishop of Sweden, when, who said, everybody knows that women can't be ordained, but we don't care, to, I was at the ordination at Stanford of one of the very first Anglican priests, female priests ever. I was, and the service was interrupted. It was a really interesting situation. Um, to, uh, what sort of protection do they have if they step outside the office? Two, if it's wrong, what sort of wrong is it, right? Two, if you baptize and you're not called to baptize, is it a baptism? And if you consecrate and you're not called to consecrate, is it a Lord's Supper? And if it's not a baptism and not, not a Lord's Supper, can it be depended upon to save you? That you're, do you have doubt at your last moment? There's all kinds of questions, and including my first day at Princess Seminary where I'm going through and there are three women in front of me, and I said, yeah, I'm Scott, where are you from? Missouri Sunday. One of them says, 
you don't, you don't ordain women, we will never talk to you again. I was canceled at an early age, right? You're kind of like, huh. So I've actually been waiting to talk about this question my entire life, but people in the Missouri Center are too afraid to talk about it, and people on the other side are too angry to talk about it, so you know what? Nobody talks about it, which is why, of course, you asked the question. But I think if you can sort it out in this single point, and it, people argue about it in all different ways, you can sort it out in this single point. And this is the same reason you could ask this question about why I'm a pastor and he's not. Did anybody ask you to do that? Or did Jesus authorize you to do this? Or did Jesus tell you to do it? Just answer that question and everything else will fall out. Because there cannot be any human qualification after that point. Just answer the question yes or no and then you have everything else becomes clear because if you know women who are ordained, you know that they have largely gotten the worst jobs at the lowest pay at the toughest places. And yet those same denominations talk all about how equal everything is, you're kind of like. So, you know, people have a difficulty. And then you have, you know, Anglicans in England where you can ordain them if you want. If your bishop says you can ordain them, you can ordain them, which is a classic Anglican move, right? Uh, <laughs> We're proud of our fuzzy doctrine. It's fabulous, right? Uh, you kind of go, what? It's either, you know, uh, so if the bishop says you can, you can. If the bishop says you And if you want to object, you can. If you don't want to object, of course, it never really works that way because in the end, political pressures one way and another push through. Anyway, way back, and thanks for being brave enough to ask. It's a simple question. And if you can get the answer to that, and it really has to do with what does God want from us? Right? And nobody has to be angry about that, especially in this time when um, women's ordination is you know, brought. Now, the other thing is, is, though, it's a little like living in Wheaton. If you live in Wheaton, you, think, you, know, you would think evangelicals are the dominant ecclesiastical force of the universe, right? Uh, but literally, most Christians don't ordain women. Not Orthodox, not Catholics, not many Lutherans. Not part of Lutheran. I mean, I didn't say that well. And only some Lutherans. That adds up to billions of Christians who don't. But you would think, because of the ruckus, the whole church does, right? So just, people just have to think rationally about it, but that is, like so many things, hard for us to think unemotionally about. So just think about this. What does Jesus want? And then sort it out. And here's the other thing. At the end of the day, one of the great things about heaven is that Jesus is going to have his way with us, right? He's going to sort it out. And all the ill we thought of other people and all the judgments we made and all the times we condemned them, if you're in heaven, that's uh, to be completely aligned with the way of Jesus. And it'll sort itself out and it won't be my responsibility or yours and that will be extraordinarily pleasant, right? What else? Anything else? Wow. Why did you wait so long? <laughs> you should have met my family earlier and decided if we really loved each other. Okay. Um, hmm. Yeah, of course, I'm tempted to go on, but that would be, I shouldn't yield to that temptation. So next week and next week, here's what we're going to talk about. If you want to take the piece home that I gave you from, you know what, I'm going to do five minutes of this. I promise five minutes. I promise, I do. And then we're going to be done. But here's the thing. From the very first day, I've been trying to describe the kind of church I want to be and the kind of church I want to belong to and be pastor of and the kind of church I'd like you to join. This is as good as anything. This piece from Nowen, okay, with burning hearts. You got it? 
Does everybody have it? Everybody got it? Mine's a little marked up, but it's, it looks like this. This is what we're aiming at. You shouldn't join here if you don't want to aim at this. If you want to aim at this, you should aim at it with everything you've got. Right? Because we, we can't have people who are kind of going halfway because, you know, that you're, you know, it's too much drag. The word Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. A Eucharistic life is one lived in gratitude. This is what we're going for. We're going for a Eucharistic life that is lived in gratitude. The story which is also our story of the two friends walking to Emmaus has shown that gratitude is not an obvious attitude toward life. This, is, this could not be clearer. People who live in gratitude are miraculous. Our natural reflex is the world is a cruel place and I'm angry. And we have to make choices to overcome that. Gratitude needs to be discovered and to be lived with great inner attentiveness. You know, people who can only come to church, you know, once a month or couldn't be bothered to say a prayer, that's not even close to great inner attentiveness. That's like barely on the road with Jesus. Our losses, our experiences of rejection and abandonment, and our many moments of disillusionment keep pulling us into anger, bitterness, and resentment. When we simply let the facts speak, there will always be enough facts to convince us that life, in the end, leads to nothing, and that every attempt to beat that fate is only a sign of profound naivete. And that is, that is the world I live in right now. These are the facts, and we're all going down. Jesus gave us the Eucharist to enable us to choose gratitude. It is a choice we ourselves have to make. Now, before you get Lutheran reaction to that, of course, the gospel is already present. The Holy Spirit is at work. And when you get the Holy Spirit, you get another choice. You can choose good. Nobody can make it for us. So, you know, I can't believe for you and you can't believe for me. And I can't make you be a good church member and you can't make me be a good pastor. But the Eucharist prompts us to cry out to God for mercy, to listen to the words of Jesus. Now you should be thinking smoke and that cross above the pastor on Christmas because it was fun. To invite him into our home, to enter in communion with him and proclaim good news to the world. You know the compass under the lectern. It opens the possibility of gradually letting go of our many resentments and choosing to be grateful, gradually, right? You're not going to go home today and your life's going to be perfect. Gradually. The Eucharistic celebration keeps inviting us to that attitude. In our daily lives, we have countless opportunities to be grateful instead of resentful. We have a guy right now in the hospital in horrible pain who spent an hour evangelizing his nurse yesterday. The pain is so bad that his family can't see him. And yet, um, God had good use of his pain. That's a choice to be grateful. The Eucharistic celebration keeps inviting us to that attitude. In our daily lives, we have countless opportunities to be grateful instead of resentful. Countless. At first, we might not recognize these opportunities. See, we grow into this. 
before we fully realized, we have already said, this is too much for me. I have no choice to be angry and to let my anger show. Welcome to America 2022. Life isn't fair and I can't act like it is. Fair, if I, you know, any millennial I know, sorry, you know, says fair nine times a day. I'm like, okay, but life isn't fair. Well, I can't act like it is. However, there is always the voice that ever and again suggests that we are blinded by our own understanding. Sin keeps us from seeing. And pull ourselves and each other into a hole. There you go. America right now. Today is bad and tomorrow will be worse. It is that voice that calls us foolish. You know, the church is foolish. The voice that asks us to have a completely new look at our lives. A look not from below, where we count our losses, but from above, where God offers his glory. You know, like when the bells ring and you look up and God is counting his glory. Do you know that Luther, at one of his very last Lord's Supper in Magdeburg, he was an old man, he had kidney stones. To cure him before the Mass, they took, put him in the back of a wagon and they rolled him across the roughest road they could find to try to bounce the stones out of him. Then he celebrated the Mass and people knew he was dying and so many people came. He got so weary that he dropped the chalice and he got down on his hands and knees and he licked it up off the floor. And the people wept. That's what it means for God to come down and offer us his glory. Eucharistic thanksgiving, in the end, comes from above. That's pure Lutheran. We live only from the gifts. It is the gift that we cannot fabricate for ourselves. It is to be received. See, so no works righteousness before you get too angry at all Catholics. Noun was a very good Catholic. He's a priest. It is freely offered and asked to be freely received. Jesus, follow me. Follow me. Come on, let's go. This will be great. This is where the choice is. We can choose to let the stranger continue his journey and so remain a stranger. That's Jesus on Emmaus, right? But we can also invite him into our inner lives. Let him touch every part of our being and then transform our resentments into gratitude. We don't have to do this. In fact, most people don't. But as often as we make that choice, everything, even the most trivial things, become new. Our little lives become great, part of the mysterious work of God's salvation. Once that happens, nothing is accidental, casual, or futile anymore. Even the most insignificant event speaks the language of faith, hope, and above all, love. That's the Eucharistic life. The life in which everything becomes a way of saying thank you to him who joined us on the road. That, as much as anything, is the target that we're aiming at, right? So if you want that, you should join, but only if you'll come full force. That doesn't mean perfect. It means full force. Um, you'll do your best, right? Uh, you'll agree that this is where we want to go and work hard at gratitude instead of complaint.
and be different, right? So that's the church we want to be. It's extraordinarily difficult, especially in these times. But then I suppose I would have said that five years and ten years ago too. So um, anyway, a couple of weeks of tune-up. Um, then, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. But anyway, thanks for staying late. Um, there's always so much to do. But I love you, and thanks for asking questions. If you have some more, send them next week. Let's pray and go. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks very much for being patient. See you next time.